Hi, I'm Adam Beaumont, founder and director of With Purpose Consulting. Come to you from Melbourne. I'm a strategist, facilitator and regulatory consultant who works with executives, leadership teams and boards to be more effective, more successful and achieve better outcomes for them and their organisations. I want to welcome you to my podcast where we have insightful discussions with prominent experts in the area of strategy, leadership, operation and tactical planning and regulation. I think perhaps one of the worst feelings you can have as a leader is in the moment when you entertain the idea that there might be corruption inside your organisation. The Hain Royal Commission into banking misconduct revealed many instances of systematic corruption, from employees setting up fraudulent loans to opening children's accounts to meet targets for bonuses. Commissioner Hain recommended that um, organisations assess their culture and their governance arrangements, reflecting that the tone is set from the top, but that also must be echoed from the bottom and reinforced at every level of management. Philosopher Emily Rorty wrote about corruption in her 1998 essay, which started, nothing is more natural than sliding down the slippery slope to corruption and from there to the hardened heart that allows people to re-describe their wrongdoing so that they can accept it as reasonable and confirm it as justified. In this podcast, we want to talk about corruption and organisational culture. Is culture really a soft skill or is organisational culture when aligned with good governance actually at the very heart of defence against corruption? To help us in this conversation, I'm joined by Cheryl Battergall. Cheryl is the chair of the Victorian Land Registry Service, the CRC for Water Sensitive Cities, the former chair of EPA Victoria and Melbourne Water. I've known Cheryl for many years and her focus on culture and empowerment has fundamentally changed me as a person, a leader and a professional. She's a public service medal holder, has extensive experience in driving change in organisational culture. So Cheryl, thank you for taking the time to chat to me. A pleasure. It's a real, it's a real pleasure to be with you on the podcast. Cheryl, so organisational culture, why is this important? Why should people care about the culture of their organisation? I think the first thing I would say is that organisational, you've got to think about what the definition of organisational culture is. And some actually talk about it as the way we do things around here. Um, when actually it's the system of doing things, the created norms within an organisation. Often there will be quite explicit messages about culture and behaviour on the walls that will, in kitchens and other places in organisations, but it's the implicit messages that we send out around the values and behaviours, not those statements on the walls. And why is it important? Um, I've said over the years, uh, I learnt a lot about culture when I was working with Professor Rob Skinner at Melbourne Water. He was the managing director and I was the chair. And when we started talking about why culture matters in an organisation, it was like someone switched a light on for me. And I, I coined a phrase which is, culture is the currency delivery. And I've used that phrase over the last 15 years because that is why culture is important. You, I, I fundamentally believe that, um, that you need to have more than just adequate resources, money and assets and people to support the success of an organisation. You actually need a good culture in the organisation. And another way of thinking about it is that, high-performing organisations 
have a high-performing culture. Mm. I do not believe that you can have a high-performing organisation without a high-performing culture. And if you define high-performing as some of the behaviours in that Hain identified in the Banking Royal Commission, uh, then clearly they were not high-performing. There were victims in that high-performance. I'm talking about organisations that run really well, that perform well, where people feel that they can be the best that they can be. And to me, then, they give off everything. That contrast between what's written on the walls, as you put it, versus what's actually felt or normalised, how have you seen that play out, you know, you know, reflecting on the Royal Commission? Like, have you seen examples of organisations that purport to work in a certain way, but in reality don't actually work that way? Uh, look, I, I imagine that in every one of the financial institutions that Hain investigated in the Royal Commission, somewhere in each one of those organisations, there was a statement about uh, values, behaviours um, and ethics as well. And, and clearly what happened is that that was one thing. That was a, a process where, you know, probably during induction, the values were discussed, the behaviours were discussed, what we expect you to, how we expect you to behave. And yet what fundamentally undermined that is the pressures that individuals were under to bring in certain financial performances um, and you described them before children's opening children's bank accounts, clearly Mm, corrupt and fraudulent. I often think about fraud and corruption in in, in similar ways, although they are different. But I've also seen it, you know, in the public service, and I think the education department uh, was a really stunning example for me. And, of course, that's now just made its way through the courts. It started with an IBAC Mm. investigation. And... I remember sitting in a, um, uh, it was it was actually a, a class for leaders uh, across the public service when that news broke and I remember being shocked to my core because I knew some of those people and I, mm-hmm. I, I actually don't bet but I would have bet that those that they that that didn't exist you know these are people I knew and so that then started to undermine my confidence in what is around me as well. So so for those that aren't familiar with that example, like what, what was the situation there? What happened at the Department of Education? So it was, it, in, in many ways, it was simple. Um, without mentioning names, it was contracts that were being let to um, family members. It was also arrangements with principals uh, around uh, the quarantine of certain money. They were really, and it started in a way that, uh, you know, was small and grew to something that was really significant Mm. in terms of the charges that were ultimately laid. And so, you know, for me, and again, I would, I would, Bet anything that the Department of Education has, you know, ha- let's face it, has fantastic people working in it and also would have very clearly stated values and behaviours, what we expect around here. 
but it was undermined. And once that undermining starts, it 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 doesn't usually finish with one person. It starts to undermine, you know, a part of an organisation, a unit, and then potentially greater than that. So, so you know, in that example, you knew those people, so you would have known what they were like and their personality or some sense of their um, them as a person. How does individuals' practices roll up to affect the culture of a whole organisation? Like how, how could you see that slippery slope, as, as Emily Rorty talked about, um, playing out? I actually think it's a really good a, a really good in sort of example of Emily Rorty. So Emily Rorty, uh, clearly, a, you know, a philosopher um, and uh, at Harvard and she, Boston University in Tufts, and she wrote this essay in 1998 called How to Harden Your Heart, Six Easy Ways to Become Corrupt. And so she talks about it as a slippery slope, and you quoted her at the, at, at the outset of the interview. Um, and how that works is really interesting, and you can you could see in measurement and tools, measurement of culture and tools that you would use, um, what sort of organisations might be exposed in this. But it starts with uh, what she calls attention to the present, and it's the sort of focus on immediate things um, and and really when faced with something overwhelming, um, so somebody might be somebody suggests something, the the culture in the unit uh, is such that there's some tension there, there is a, a lack of encouragement and a lack of opportunity to thrive. And then it moves to, um, well, look, this is the way we do things around here. Um, and if you want to be part of this, this is the way we do things around here. Now, in the absence of any countervailing influences, that is what I would call real leadership, the individual might be junior to that person, usually would be junior to that person who is putting pressure on, and then they're guided by their feelings. They're not guided by what's written on the wall. They're guided by by a sort of a survival instinct. Mm. And if you think about, you know, the, the failure to of opportunity to thrive, you, they start to become part of the this is the way we do things around here and then it becomes a habit. Um, and so if you've done something once and you got away with it, um, and it can be something really small. This can start in a really small way. Then we, the way we humans learn is we learn often from experience. And so those, um, those that fraud or corruption becomes uh, ingrained, and it actually can embolden the um, the individuals to to make it a larger fraud or corruption. And then, of course. The peer group around um, this is this suddenly can become a peer group that is they're doing well. They're often they're often lauded in the organisation for doing well. Uh, they might be meeting performance indicators, and so they're actually attracting um, others 
and maybe other units in the organisation who are watching those behaviours. So it it becomes very normalised. Now, people mightn't exactly know what's happening, but they start to realise that if they want to be like them, this is how we've got to do it, so imitating the leader. And so the role model of that leader who is, let's face it, is leading astray um, and the leader's behaviour is emulated. Now, I think we can see that in all sorts of ways that might not even be called fraud and corruption. But I'll give you the best example of we go out on, you know, I don't see this much anymore, but, you know, you go out on a Friday night after work, you have a few drinks, you have more drinks, you know, um, and you and it becomes a habit and the people imitating the leader of that group. And so there is some role modelling which has been created and some behavioural cues and if people want to fit in, they go out for drinks. Now, that's it's not fraud and corruption, but what I'm, what I'm talking about is the norms that are created around behaviours that are unhelpful. And, you know, and then it all, you know, the, the last step in Rorty's journey in the slippery slide is really papering the track. The, the cracks. So um, really you what you do is you put your old self and your old self with those behaviours, those, those ethics that you had in a little box and in order to survive in that workplace, that's what you do. Now, that can be as simple as, you know, poor language. Uh, it can be as simple as behavioural norms around the way we treat others, you know, in terms of diversity but it can also include fraud and corruption. Mm. And, and how much do you see the weight of culture in an organisation as capable of displacing people who you would have thought on first glance, oh, hang on, I know that person. I can't understand how they'd ever behave like that. Like how important is culture in mobilising poor behaviours in people who are fundamentally good? It's, it is about creating a norm of a really good culture. Now that, in my view, it starts with uh, the leaders in the organisation and not just putting the statements on the wall, but it is the way that they behave. It's the expectations they have of people who report to them and it's the way they interact with everybody and in particular it would be the way that whistleblowers and those who are standing up to poor behaviour are being treated. And so, you know, I will remember a moment in an organisation, and this this was about bullying, and where it was, I actually witnessed it as I walked through, and it was physical, as I walked through the organisation. And the CEO at the time when I reported it just acted immediately, like, Immediately, and there was just there was nothing. There was no we're, we're going to go through us. We're going to go through and bring these people together. This was a, I, I, what I witnessed was it was actually somebody pulling somebody's hair, uh, and it was it was done in such a way that it was clearly meant to intimidate. You know, it was a it's, it's hard to explain. You have to be there to see it. But by the end of the day, the person who who was the bully was not in the organisation. Um, now. Wow. My strong belief is that in order to create a culture, we have to, we as leaders have to live that culture and we don't excuse poor behaviours of any sort, let alone fraud and corruption, um, because 
maybe there's a scale here. Maybe poor behaviours lead to fraud, fraud and corruption. Mm. And so um, I think we have to live as leaders, live and breathe a healthy culture that encourages people to um, uh, to effectively, constructively communicate. So they, they, they feel comfortable about saying no. They feel comfortable that there's somewhere to go in an organisation organization that is when they don't agree um, and that they won't be you know effectively put into mediation sessions that people will listen and that behavior my, my experience is that it starts with leadership at the very top of the organization obviously the CEO but I think the board as well has a role to play in this um, and then it has to cascade around who we who that CEO appoints as executives and so on. I've often seen in measurement of um, culture that you you can see if you if you cut a cut the measurement and look at the results at the executive level, you might see a really excellent culture. You might see it um, at the next level down. And you might see it at the very bottom of the organisation, but sometimes in the middle of the organisation, let's call it team leaders. Uh, in when I, in years ago when I was working um, in the waste industry, it was the leading hands. Now they're the people who are literally responsible for getting their team together to do uh, work and to assign the work and get it done day by day their life is difficult. They're being squeezed from the top and the bottom. That's how they see it. Um, And sometimes I think, no, I know that the the culture of that group, that, that, that group that is really responsible for the operations, uh, is the hardest to change because they need to get things done and they, they have their own ways of doing it. And so, you know, but you do have to start with leadership and you do have to hold each other to account and everybody in the organisation has to be part of that ultimately. And if that happens, if you do have that high-performing culture where, let's face it, people, to be the best they can be, they need not to just do what they're told. They need to be able to be creative in their environment. They need to be able to take risks and genuine risks that uh, that they understand and they need to be, when ma- mistakes are made, because we all make mistakes and I've seen some doozies even in organisations with great culture, what, we don't point the finger of blame, but what we do is we unpick what went wrong and most often what went wrong is not the individual but the system around them in some way. Mm. But I've seen people who've made what could have been catastrophic or maybe not catastrophic, really serious errors, actually reverse that decision, um, you know, in the middle of an operation and then disclose it when if they hadn't have reversed the decision, they they would not have been found out. Now, that is a fantastic culture because what we learned from that is actually we had a systematic flaw in our processes. Um, and that's when you become high-performing organisations, when you... You manage to dig through and we all have flaws in our systems. You manage to dig through, find the flaws and fix them and we encourage people to do that. And now that is a great culture and it becomes a high-performing organisation with a high-performing culture. 
this is Adam Beaumont, and you're listening to Conversations with Purpose. My guest today is Cheryl Battergall, former chair of EPA Victoria and Melbourne Water. And we're talking about culture as a defence against corruption. So the, 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 the culture component that you talked about at the start was it's more than just how things are done. It's the system of how things have got done. And you talk a little bit about the, this downward gradient, if you like, into um, people who are seen as performers in the organisation or seen as setting the norms. In, in an organisation that has elements of corruption or where corruption has service or been revealed, how much do you think it is the isolated group of people who, you know, were involved in this versus how much of it was the culture that created that group in the first instance? What's the line between those two things? That's a good question. I think the system allows it to happen. So, you know, the system uh, means that we don't have a system where we measure culture, where we where we look at behaviours in a really systematic way, where we encourage um, innovation in an organisation. Uh, and so that's the system. Um, but it must start with an individual um, at the end of the day who uh, hasn't signed on to that. Um, but it can also be that the system, you know, I, I'm really interested in the way that sometimes there are implicit messages. And I think the Hain Royal Commission um, is a really good example. The messages were profit at any cost and we saw the mm. cost to individuals and people were, were rewarded for that. So no matter what, and I'm, I absolutely guarantee there would have been statements about values and behaviours and how we value the customer on the walls, but, in fact, that wasn't true because what we did is we valued profit above everything. And mm. um, so, and it might not be profit. It might be that sometimes the uh, the units in an organisation that I worry about are the ones that just seem to get things done, you know, without any problems um, and they continue to deliver and everybody talks about how fantastic they are. Well, just, you know, they may well be. But just, you know, be wary of, you know, um, a, a super shining star unit in an organisation. Um, and, and I've become wary also, um, and this has certainly happened before, where people have been not, uh, not keen to go on holidays and they built up very long, very big leave balances and they're not prepared to, um, to have anybody sit in their position while they go on leave. Now, I, I, now there, mm. could, there could be completely legitimate reasons and some people, if we're, you know, in, in these days we're not travelling, but some people build up for a very significant travel period Absolutely fine. But if you see, you know, one of my things is oversight. If I see leave balances building uh, in a particular unit or a particular individual who is in, in a position to influence, I, I just start to ask questions about that. 
And, and this example, like in that scenario, it could be that the culture of the organization or the culture of that particular team is that, no, we, we work really hard, we don't take breaks, that's what's rewarded, that behavior is rewarded and seen as um, the idolized version of working. How do you decouple, to your point around, you know, the disparity between the statement on the wall versus the lived experience, if you've got an organization that sees culture as a soft skill, if you want to call it that, um, they may be less inclined to measure it and therefore you don't have the same tracking mechanisms mm -hmm. that say that culture is of value and we should monitor it and invest in it. How do you manage the discussion um, at a board level or even at an exec level where you say, no, no, culture is a key component of managing corruption, we need to invest and measure it? How do you stop people going, oh, no, no, culture is just a soft skill thing, we don't want to invest in that? Um, it's really interesting because... All the years I have been presenting on my experience of culture in organisations, I have I've been constantly told, including on Twitter, interestingly, that culture is a soft skill. Um, and I do wonder if people think I'm standing there as a woman uh, and, and they're associating that behaviour with being a soft skill. And I think it's anything but. But let me say that I think that that, language culture and soft skill has changed and I think Hain changed it. Mm. I, I think clearly the shock and, you know, we can still see waves occurring uh, in organisations that came, uh, that skated very close to the line and over it in Hain today or last week in, in the newspapers. And so I think Hain has put to bed uh, that culture is a soft skill. Uh, culture now, uh, organisational culture, is as important as any other, you know, what I call culture as a currency for delivery. It's as important as any other tool you have to deliver. Uh, and it's interestingly that Hain has talked about whether culture, in fact, that APRA should regulate culture now. Mm, yeah. I'm not I'm not 100% sure that APRA should regulate culture, although I can see overseas that boards are having governance monitors put into, into board meetings, which I think is peculiar. But nevertheless, I think as a regulator, I think a really important, if you walk into your regulator doesn't matter what it is you're what what subject it is you're regulating. You walk in, and I think assessing the culture of that organisation is a critical issue for you as a regulator. And it doesn't matter whether you're APRA or whether you're EPA mm. or whether you're, um, you know, the wildlife uh, the wildlife regulator. The and I think assessing the culture of the organisation or the group of people that you are regulating is a critical issue in understanding what's happening in the organisation. I'm not necessarily in favour of regulating culture, but I do think regulators uh, should be assessing the culture of those they're regulating. But it also raises the question, what of the regulators themselves? You know, regulators are extraordinarily vulnerable to fraud and corruption. You know, and we've talked about it in police circles for as long as there's been 
police, but I think we should think of all regulators as being vulnerable to fraud and corruption. And I think, therefore, regulators need culture in the organisation needs to be assessed, it needs to be monitored and measured, and if it's not great, there needs to be a plan around that which needs to be, you know, which needs to be improved. And it's interesting that one of the culture myths that exist is that it's HR's role to manage manage culture. Um, And actually that's, I completely disagree. HR are fantastic in being able to deal with poor performers, there, you know, if we if we're in if we have an issue around an outcome, which it might be a cultural outcome, HR help us deal with it. But actually, culture is led initially by the board and by the by the CEO and the executive team. But then it must float through that that same leadership must be exhibited in terms of culture right through the organisation at every level, right through to team level, team leader. And then ultimately what happens is individuals understand it. Now, I've, I've actually seen it when individuals come into an organisation, they might be told at induction about the culture of the organisation, but they remain a bit sceptical. But after a few months, and this is my experience, uh, People come and say to me, you know, do you remember what you said at induction? It's actually true. This organisation, I feel that I can be myself in this organisation, that I can really, I can innovate uh, and I can grow as an individual uh, in this organisation. So that's the best part of a great culture. Mm. But the worst part, of course, is that it can be turned into fraud and corruption, and there is no doubt that regulators are vulnerable in that space. And so there is no question in my mind that regulators need to define the culture that they want, they need to measure it, uh, they need to lead it, they need to debrief on it, they need to talk it, they need to walk it, and they need to remeasure it and and start start the circle again, and it's as as critical as measuring that as you know measuring your finances or the amount of uh, prosecutions that you have. Uh, culture is as critical as any of those elements. So, in terms of your experience of you know guiding and supporting CEOs that were reporting to you, either as the chair of the board or as part of the board, if you were to be having another conversation with a new incoming CEO about the importance of culture as a defence against corruption, particularly in a regulatory organisation, and you had five minutes with them, what would you say? What are the key points you try to convey about the importance of culture as a defence against corruption? It's interesting because you talked about a new CEO. I start an interview um, and it's one of my critical uh, gateways in terms of interview. And and when I've got through that and we talk about the fact that culture, you know, I can talk about culture being the currency for delivery, I can talk about culture being a critical to the performance of the organisation, but frankly, um, the first experience of it, often by CEO, and this has been said back to me, is, yeah, I can, I can, I can see, I've been here um, 
six weeks, let's say, and I can feel the culture is different, but I think the culture here is about being nice to each other and just that you're all very nice to each other. And I said, no, you haven't got it yet. (laughs) You know, you need to still spend some more time um, and, and and it will emerge, and it does, and it emerges in the way of, Potentially, I'll give you an example, which is not a true example, but it's the way it it can emerge. It is a relatively junior person feeling free to approach a CEO or a senior executive or, in fact, even the chair of the board and say, I've seen something which I'm worried about Mm. and that that person is treated not only with respect but that they are treated as if what they've said is an absolutely critical business issue. Now, often we think about people who make complaints as, uh, okay, we have to go through a mediation session, you know, they're one off. But, you know, when you've been around a while and you hear somebody say that and you get another bit of a sense of somebody else saying something which is not exactly the same, but, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck start to uh, go up and you start to get a feel that something's not right. So what does that mean? It means that you have a culture where um, you're approachable as a senior leader, where you don't dismiss individuals' um, fears or observances. It doesn't mean you totally believe them, but you don't dismiss them. Um, And that becomes something you put into your top pocket, not your back pocket, as, you know, you might discuss it with the executive whose unit it is. You might discuss it with HR, you know, what are the likelihood of being an issue, but you don't dismiss it. Um, and so, to me, that's the, the role of leadership in creating the culture. And it's then when that emerges that, that you know, junior individual, they might not have the full story, but they've seen something which, you know, one plus one for them meant two, but in fact it actually meant five in a different way. And, mm. and to me that's an open organisation where people can feel free to, and you mightn't call it whistleblowing, you could call it whistleblowing, um, feel free to actually talk about what went wrong and then ultimately to debrief. If if it wasn't substantiated, to actually pull it apart and, and help the person understand what they did see. Um, and so, mm. you know, it, it's really important to empower individuals in this high-performing culture, and that's the, you know, imagine in the, that Emily Rorty's, you know, six uh, easy steps. Um, you know, if someone in the middle of there says, hang on a second, this doesn't feel right to me, um, and imagine there's, it's an organisation where people are encouraged to speak to senior executives who are not sitting up on the umpteenth floor, um, which often doesn't happen anymore anyway, but, you know, where they feel that 
they have permission. Um, and that's the quickest thing that will stop fraud and corruption. Now, there's obviously some people are very clever in terms of fraud and corruption. They're doing it as individuals. They're hiding their tracks. But I'm talking about a systemic problem within a culture, not yeah. an individual acting alone here. One final question from me, Cheryl. Like if you, you know, reflecting on your years of experience leading organisations and, you know, with a view now of the importance of culture and driving performance and productivity but also being, you know, a key can ingredient to creating a speak-up culture where, as you said, you know, a junior member of staff could say, hey, I saw this, not sure what it means. If you could do one thing different in your career, you know, with respect to culture, what would you do differently? I think it's something I've contemplated because I've had trouble with the the concept of culture being understood. And so when I've more recently, in more recent years, been talking about it as a part of a risk management system, I've had much more traction. So the my example would be that... Um, you know, there is a, a system in risk management called the three lines of defence. It's 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 a really standard system. The first line of defence being management ownership, and you know, so the management owns the the risk and the risk control processes. Then oversight is the second line of defence, and that's um, you know the governance system that you put around it. And then assurance, like internal audit, and things like that. Now those three lines are the way I think of them as three, you know, as linear. But instead, if you you regarded them as triangles, you put them together in a pyramid and there's a big gap in the middle. And in that big gap, I call that um, culture. I call it organisational culture. It's where the values, ethics and integrity sit. And without that, those that risk management system is it actually will can can fail quite substantially fail. Mm. So uh, the thing that I've learned in my journey, my leadership journey around culture, is that I have to put it in terms that it's not a soft skill, that it's a hard business skill, and that understanding it as part of a risk management system and that. What I'm actually saying is that our risk management systems are deficient unless we consider culture. So, you know, my absolute view is that culture is a defence against fraud and corruption and it is at the heart of any risk management system. Mm. Yeah, so not only does it create the circumstances where people are more willing to call things out, to recognise mistakes, to learn from them, but it's core to that fundamental risk acumen, an early warning sign that people point out things that don't quite fit, aren't the way of working. And to your point, you know, how you do the job is as important as what you deliver. Um, Cheryl, thank you so much for your time. I think there's a lot to, to think through on this. I think we could have a much longer conversation, but I'm certainly walking away very clearly that culture is not a soft skill. It's something that you do need to define, do need to assess, monitor, manage and lead out. Thanks again. Um, appreciate you, you know, giving your time up to, to talk with me. Thanks, Adam. I enjoyed it very much. Take care. 
You can follow Cheryl on Twitter at Cheryl Battergall and learn more about her current portfolio and board roles on LinkedIn. This is Adam Beaumont. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Purpose. Please subscribe, and if you'd like more information, please visit my website, withpurpose.consulting. See ya.